Hello, folks. Welcome back to the 23rd episode of Myth, the first and last word, a bi-weekly program examining the myths of our world. I'm Echo Kane, an artist, musician, storyteller, ecologist, and educator interested in the socio-cultural historical interactions found within spirituality, myth, and religion. Twice a week, we attempt to better make sense of our rapidly changing and confusing modern world with the help of both ancient and contemporaneous myths from a wide variety of cultures. Today, we'll be looking at the myth Coyote and Salmon, which comes to us from the Klamath tribe from uh, present-day Oregon. Join me today on a journey into the past and the present. A voyage of the soul to understand itself, where we find both the first written word and the mystery of the last word entwined through time. Welcome to the world of myth. Today, Coyote and the Salmon has almost no information pertaining to it either online or within the texts that I have access to. It was probably recorded in the early 1900s when many other myths from the region were written down in anthropologies, uh, some of which were sponsored by the American government in Oregon, where the Klamath tribe is from. Now, uh, we of course don't know that for certain. It could have been written down in the late 1800s or even as early as the early 1800s, although probably not before that, as there might have been contact with uh, Europeans prior to that point, but probably very limited and not recorded if it was. Let's talk about the history of the Klamath because it is vast and rather important for the myth today. The Klamath represent a collection of peoples today that mixed together and assimilated into the Klamath tribe from the larger region of Oregon. These include the Klamath, the Modoc, and the Yahuskin tribes. The Klamath still live in their ancestral homeland in southern Oregon and northern California. Some Modoc also remained in this location, although some were relocated due to a war that we'll talk about in a little bit, because the Modoc history runs parallel to the Klamath history throughout most of our history today, and then they uh, coalesce into one eventually. Before the 1820s, the Klamath and Modoc caught salmon and hunted and gathered. The Modoc migrated seasonally and had permanent winter housing in small huts of branches and mud. This style of housing insulated the Modoc from the shivering wind that would shriek over the lakes and rivers they settled by, relying on fishing for food when times got tough. There were a number of other tribes that both groups probably traded with, though some reports say that the Klamath were relatively isolated though this seems to be incorrect, as there are also references to the Klamath trading with other tribes and even raiding for food and slaves after the horse was introduced. 
The Klamath themselves reference a series of complicated trade routes existing before contact with Europeans. So this idea that the Klamath lived in isolation appears to be a falsehood. The Klamath probably held a lot of power in the region due to their centralized location. The Klamath also claimed to have been in the region since time immemorial, claiming to have even seen the eruption of Mount Mazama. If this is true, then the Klamath would have had to be in the region since at least 6,000 BCE, or about 8,000 years ago. In the 1820s, both Klamath, 1826, and Modoc peoples were contacted by a representative of the Hudson Bay Company, Peter Skeen Ogden. Both instances of contact were peaceful and focused on trade. However, the arrival of other trappers and settlers led to hostilities and guerrilla warfare between the Hudson Bay Company and the Klamath and Modoc. Historical records reference a few instances of these Hudson Bay Company trappers journaling that they had been attacked by local tribes. However, no exact tribe is implicated. In 1846, the Applegate Trail was built, connecting Oregon more directly to a flow of European movement. The trail did not quite reach the more northern Klamath, but did end at Lava Beds Monument, a national monument today that is the center of Modoc land and history. The same year, American explorers claimed to have been attacked by Native Americans during the night. In the scuffle, they killed one warrior. The U.S. explorers decided to avenge their two lost fellows that had been killed. The explorers fell upon a Klamath village named Dokdokwas, destroying buildings, killing warriors, and slaughtering women and children. Around this time, a Modoc village is said to have been also attacked, though the exact reference is lost to time. The later chief of the Modoc, Kint Puash, was present during this massacre. It is understood as one of the reasons he fought during the later Modoc War and contributed to the many immigrants killed by Modoc before the 1870s. The settlers now began to come more frequently, some due to rumors of gold, they would just pass through the region typically to reach these gold reserves. However, the Modoc began attacking settlers on the trail more regularly, fearing that they would settle in this region, not respecting the ancestral lands of the Modoc and Klamath. Approximately 300 European immigrants were killed during this time. Though this violence was swiftly returned to the Modoc via the Ben Wright Massacre, in which 40 Modoc were killed. The overall number of Modoc who lost their lives was likely close to the number of immigrants that they killed, a rarity in European relations with Native Americans. The Klamath benefited from the Modoc's efforts, putting space between their world and the encroaching European one. Though the Klamath also occasionally attacked European immigrants, the Modoc underwent most of the hardship in the region, which is unfortunately far from over in this history. In 1864, the Klamath, Modoc, and Yahuskin peoples signed a treaty with the United States, ceding more than 23 million acres to the U.S. government, although sometimes it's referenced as only 6 million acres, so the historical record isn't quite sure. The most believable sources I could find referenced 23 million, but who knows. 
The Klamath retained about two million acres of their ancestral land, including the lands of the Modoc Plateau. The Modoc lost all their land in Northern California and were forcibly relocated to live in the new Klamath Reservation. This and the slow mounting tension of being the main force on the front lines fighting against European colonizers for the benefit of the Klamath and Modoc peoples, but mostly the Klamath because the Modoc were the ones doing the fighting. Well, this led to a falling out between the two tribes. This conflict led to the Modoc War with the U.S. The treaty contained a number of oppressive measures against the Klamath, Modoc, and Yehuskin. Firstly, only one of the Klamath triblets, the Ao Ukni, retained most of their ancestral land. The Palaikni, Kowa Kadikni, Du Kwakni, Gu Mbotkni, and Lulalontni all had to move to an area that they were not used to living in. There was also a clause that allowed the U.S. to relocate other Native American tribes to the reservation whenever they wanted. Furthermore, alcohol use or storage was prohibited under pain of reservation funding being cut. At the time, the Klamath likely numbered 1,200 people or so, while the Modoc only numbered 600. These numbers are low and might be completely incorrect due to limited census data and a lack of regular access to the reservation. In 1870, six years after this treaty, Kint Puash, the chief of the Modoc, called his people to join him and return to their homeland of Lost River. About 150 to 200 people did so and built a small village by the river, breaking the terms of the treaty. Many Modoc didn't feel represented in the reservation's governance and were generally seen as second-class citizens by the Klamath at the time. Thus began the Modoc War, though to understand it we must back up to analyze the relations between the Modoc and the U.S. The Modoc were extremely hostile to the U.S. due to the previous massacres, the prevalence of settlers wandering through their territory, and the oppression of the Klamath souring even their own local alliances. The Modoc were alone, so when they set out for their home on Lost River, it was a last-ditch effort to take back what they had lost, damn the world or the people running it. The movement of anti-treaty Modoc only made up two-thirds of the Modoc tribe and were in opposition to the elder chief Skonshin, who was content with the treaty, despite issues with the Klamath. The rebel Modoc would have been young, not remembering a time before conflict with Europeans. The Modoc exhausted their options for negotiation before war. They petitioned the U.S. Department of Indian Affairs for a different reservation, slightly south of the Klamath Reservation. This request was completely ignored by the bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. This negligence led to further frustration within the ranks of the Modoc, as they did not feel heard. Modoc that remained in the Klamath Reservation often took food from other tribes who lived there and were seen as raiders. Realistically, the Modoc simply did not have the access to land or food that other tribes, especially the Klamath, did. At this crucial moment, the envoy from the U.S. was replaced with somebody who was not even briefed on the situation unfolding in Oregon. The new envoy was only interested in moving the Modoc back to the Klamath Reservation. 
This point of view led to small-scale skirmishes and a few meetings that were inconclusive. Eventually, the tensions erupted, and the U.S. envoy went to Lost River in order to march the Modoc out. Kitpuash accepted the terms and even surrendered his weapons. However, a high-ranking warrior argued with a U.S. lieutenant, leading both of them to shoot their weapons. However, they both missed each other. The Modoc, confused, took up their weapons and began to flee back towards California. Each side lost a few warriors during the scuffle and attained several wounded during the short battle. Kitpuash and the rebel Modoc fled to the lava beds. It was here that Chief Kitpuash had decided that a siege would be feasible to withstand. The Modoc knew that it was truly only a matter of time, but at this point it was more about the aesthetics of resistance. In recordings of Kitpuash, he seems quite proud of his fortification of the area, and it remains a destination for those interested in Native American history, as many structures built by the Modoc remain today. 400 American soldiers were sent to take the lava beds and return Kitpuash and the Modoc to the Klamath Reservation. Only 50-some warriors were among the Modoc, but Kitpuash was sure of their fortification. In the first battle, Kitpuash was proved right. The Modoc took no casualties while successfully repelling the American forces. In response, a peace commission was sent by the Americans, of whom Kitpuash only spoke to two settlers, requesting a specific judge from Erika that had been given to him. The judge stayed one night with the Modoc and the next day informed the Americans that treachery was afoot and that no negotiation with Kitpuash would prove successful. After many months, Kitpuash still wanted a peaceful solution. However, his fellows became more antsy as time passed. They believed that killing a member of the Peace Commission would send the message to America that the Modoc should be left alone. Kitpuash surrendered to the Splinter Group, accepting that his forces would attack the Commission if no progress could be made. Kitpuash continued to ask for a small reservation on the site of the Modoc fortification, but was continually rebuked for some unforeseen reason. Washington, D.C. had to send a message allowing for such an action, which likely wouldn't occur until the conflict was resolved. Frustrated, the more impatient Modoc fell upon the peace commissioners, killing one and severely injuring two others. At this point, negotiations had fallen through. The Americans began again to attack the lava beds. When the Modoc realized that their water had been cut off by an American forward party, they fled, escaping through an unguarded crevice they had kept for just that occasion. A successful guerrilla attack at Sand Butte was followed by a very unsuccessful attack at Dry Lake. It became clear to some Modoc that this eternal fighting was no real life, so a splinter group surrendered and helped capture Kitpuash. The leaders of the Modoc were put on trial. Half were sent to prison for life, while the others and Kitpuash were sentenced to execution in 1873. In fact, this particular sentencing would lead to memos that gave permission to American forces to torture Afghani terrorists in the modern era. This demonstrates the ways in which America allows for precedents to be set that are extremely violent, allowing for further violent actions to be condoned and allowed to continue even into the modern day. 
The Modoc that survived the war and its aftermath were sent to Oklahoma and were eventually returned to the Klamath Reservation. The Modoc War was the most expensive war against Native Americans in American history, totaling $400,000. A thousand U.S. troops were involved in the war at its tail end, all to take into custody 50 warriors and probably about 150 women and children. The war likely only entrenched the Klamath in their negotiations with America, ensuring that they retained what little they could, seeing the result of angering the U.S. government in their backyard. In fact, the Klamath built a lumber mill and regularly traded lumber with Americans during the Modoc War. The Klamath developed their land quickly, using U.S. aid to build schools, houses, and other public structures. In 1911, a railroad was placed in the reservation, probably to enable ease of shipping for the lumber, which had quickly become a luxury item throughout the U.S. The Klamath clearly landed on the side of assimilation, as they even made use of U.S. educational aid, providing them with a number of specialists within their own ranks. The Klamath were also the premier shippers and porters in the region, making use of the pre-existing trade routes that they were privy to. As the Modoc failed to retain even their sovereignty, the Klamath's economy boomed. In 1954, the Klamath ceased to be recognized for aid by the U.S. government. This was because the Klamath actually paid for all of their aid, thus demonstrating that it was not needed. Oddly, this termination of aid also wiped the recognition of being American Indian or Amerindian from government records as well, demonstrating the ties between race and class in America. The Klamath were targeted for this change because they were prospering. The Assistant Secretary of the Interior said at the time, It is our belief these people have been largely integrated into all phases of the economic and social life of the area. Their dress is modern, and there remains little vestige of their religious or their traditional Indian customs. As if that's a good thing. The termination was sponsored by Wade Crawford, a Klamath who was not well-liked outside the wealthiest of the Klamath, who wanted more control over their finances. There was also the question about educational readiness, which were ignored in favor of termination. Strangely, when the termination was put to a vote, there was no option to actually refuse this termination. The termination did not end the reservation, which exists today as 12 distinct land parcels in southern Oregon. The seat of Klamath power is in Chiloquin, where the tribal council meets. In recent years, water rights have come under threat. However, the initial treaty of land session has protected the Klamath. It was stated that the U.S. government could not abrogate the fishing rights of the tribe, which included restricting access to the rivers and lakes. There are 5,700 members of the Klamath tribe today, some likely from Modoc, Klamath, and Yahuskin communities. They also own a casino, which is where they get a lot of their wealth today. And as for the Yahuskin, they do not have much history that I could find concerning them. Uh, essentially none. They seem to have assimilated quite quickly with the Klamath after the reservation system began, and there's very little reference to them before this as well. So they seem to have been a fairly minor tribe in the same region as the Klamath.
All right, let's get into our myth. It is very, very short today, so we might read it two times in order to get a really full understanding of the metaphors that are going on in this myth. Coyote and the Salmon Then Coyote went to Klamath River. He found the people very poor. They had no food. The river was full of salmon, but the people could not get any. Three Skookums had built a dam to prevent the salmon from coming up the river. So the Skookums had all the fish, but the people had none. Coyote was very angry. Coyote said, before many suns, fish shall come up the river. The people shall have all the salmon they need. Then Coyote went to the mouth of the river. The Skookums saw him. They thought he was only a skulking coyote. Coyote whined for some of their fish. Skookum would not give him any. Coyote came close to their camp. The Skookums drove him away, but Coyote saw where the Skookums kept the key of the dam. That was what he had wanted when he whined for fish. Next morning, when Skookum started down to open the trap and let in a fish for herself, Coyote ran out of the teepee, jumped between Skookum's feet, and tripped her up. Skookum fell, and the key fell out of her hand. Then Coyote picked up the key and went to the dam. Coyote opened the dam and let the fish through. The salmon went upstream into the country of the Karoks. Then the people had food to eat. Afterwards, Coyote broke down the dam. Ever since then, salmon go every year up that river. Hmm, interesting. So that word skookum refers to evil spirits, I believe here, or a representation of an evil spirit. It's not exactly clear. I looked up the definition because I actually had never heard the word before. So. I'm not exactly certain what it is representative of, but we will try to read the myth nonetheless. So let's place Skookum as white person and read the myth again with that understanding in mind. Perhaps that can give us an understanding of how this myth could be read through the context of colonization of the region that was occurring probably when this myth was written down. Then Coyote went to Klamath River. He found the people very poor. They had no food. The river was full of salmon, but the people could not get any. Three Skookums had built a dam to prevent the salmon from coming up the river. So the Skookums had all the fish, but the people had none. Coyote was very angry. Coyote said, Before many suns, fish shall come up the river. The people shall have all the salmon they need. Then Coyote went to the mouth of the river. The Skookums saw him. They thought he was only a skulking coyote. Coyote whined for some of their fish. Skookum would not give him any. Coyote came close to their camp. The Skookums drove him away. But Coyote saw where the Skookums kept the key of the dam. That was what he had wanted when he whined for fish.
Next morning, when Skookum started down to open the trap and let in a fish for herself, Coyote ran out of the teepee, jumped between Skookum's feet, and tripped her up. Skookum fell, and the key fell out of her hand. Then Coyote picked up the key and went to the dam. Coyote opened the dam and let the fish through. The salmon went upstream into the country of the Kairoks. Then the people had food to eat. Afterwards, Coyote broke down the dam. Ever since then, salmon go every year up that river. With that reading of Skookum as white person, I think that this myth reads pretty quickly as a condemnation of the settler colonial mindset of the Americans and their usage of the land. Americans were known for building dams in the West, and that caused so many ecological issues that are going on today. If you want to learn more about it, go to my website, www.echocane.com. I have a, I think it's like 20 page long document in my critical studies section under my scientific work that is a meta-analysis of riparian wetland conservation and health in the American Southwest. Now, this is not the American Southwest, but Oregon is very much experiencing uh, similar issues now as the American Southwest is. In fact, the whole West is dealing with pretty major water supply issues and water rights issues for indigenous peoples that have lived traditionally in these regions. And some of that is due to the damming of rivers and the construction of structures within rivers, slowing them down or preventing them from moving. This process is sometimes called channelization. If you don't know, the LA River is now a concrete stream, a tiny little thing that is most famous for being used for a number of car chases in Hollywood films, such as Terminator 2. Now, that tiny river used to be a much larger river. It was channelized over time, dammed up over and over again so that people had access to reservoirs and so that they could build more buildings closer to the ocean, ultimately the coast. Because when you have all of that water from the LA River flowing out, it forms something of a delta. But if you channelize it and even stop it up, you don't have that and you can build on the coast. This is how Los Angeles exists today. It's the only way it can really exist how it is. In fact, there were a number of attempts quite early on in the city's development to beautify the city by bringing the LA River back to prominence, but they never worked. And it continues to be a big question of what to do with the LA River because it's just this eyesore ultimately, and there's no way to actually fix it at this point. It's basically broken. That's what dams eventually do. They break ecology. They break the river system and fundamentally break the water cycle. Sometimes going against nature is not the best idea for humans. It's actually a good thing for rivers and creeks and streams to be able to move about and to flow regularly. By damming them up, it prevents them from flowing and prevents groundwater from entering throughout the entirety of that river. This can cause lots of issues where you start losing wetlands, which means that you start losing the ability to purify water naturally because believe it or not, wetlands purify water and you could have easily drank from some of those rivers 
not really worrying that much about bacteria. Certainly if you had just boiled it, it wouldn't have been a problem. Um, although you could make that argument now today, but like, uh, you, I would say it's even dangerous to just boil things nowadays, especially in the West when you have these really bad rivers that are all dammed up and they don't have this flow. They aren't, they're not being cleaned. That water is dirty. And this is a problem everywhere on Earth right now. There's very few large rivers that haven't been dammed up in some respect. This clearly was affecting the Klamath, the Yahuskin, the Modoc people, because they relied on fishing. They relied on the salmons, on the salmons. They relied on the salmon to come upstream. That's what this story is about. It's about white people building a dam and preventing people from getting access to those salmon. The only reason that it's a myth is because it queers this notion with the introduction of the trickster character. And this trickster character is very purposefully picked. Coyote, in the construction of this myth, must do what he must in order to trick the Skookums to give him access to return the world back to its natural state. That is ultimately probably what the Klamath wanted to do. They probably wanted all of their land back. They probably wanted those dams to just disappear, to be unlocked and opened. Now, we know that dams don't really work like that, unfortunately. <laughs> They're pretty hard to dismantle because they create changes in the ecology surrounding them. And so by destroying a dam, it can be very beneficial. We've actually seen that. Dam demolition in recent years has come under scrutiny as a practice for actually revitalizing rivers and wetlands. And it's starting to be done in Europe and we'll probably see this trend continue into America, certainly in the Northeast and more Eastern regions. Although we might not see this in the West because the water resources are so poor already that people may not feel like they can take down these dams, destroying their reservoirs and spreading their water even more thin, even if it is just for a time and we'll be able to revitalize the entire ecosystem more fully if they did that option. It's complicated. Politics is very difficult when it surrounds uh, water or food, things that you really need to live. The Klamath were probably hungry regularly in the beginning parts of the reservation period. And they, though assimilating quite quickly into Euro-American culture, clearly retained quite a lot of their cultural traditions. They were just okay with doing a lot of free trade, which happens to align with capitalist values and were not intending to make too much war with the Americans. Once again, probably because the Modoc were the ones doing that and seeing the brunt of the pain that that rebellion caused. So the Klamath were very lucky, but they also suffered. This is often the case. My people, the Jews, are often a people that do not suffer as bad as the rest of the people in a society, but we still suffer because we oftentimes are not as rich or exist in a somewhat uh, tenuous state with the racial and religious politics of a country. You know, and not every year in Jewish life is there a Holocaust, but it does happen. I feel like the Klamath probably existed in a similar sort of realm where they knew that their existence 
in trading with America was tenuous, where if they tried to trade more with people outside of America or started to withhold their goods, there might have been some violence brought upon them. And that's a really difficult place to be in. And it makes you look like the bad guy. If you listened to that history really closely, you might have noticed that the Klamath don't really do very much, and they're somewhat uninterested in uplifting those around them. Now, I'm not going to say that that's a good thing, but nonetheless, I can't blame them. When you, too, are being oppressed, even in a smaller way than those who are also being oppressed, it is sometimes very difficult to get up off your ass and actually do something to help those other people. Especially if they're stealing from you. I mean, there was a lot of hate moving between the Modoc and the Klamath during this time. Although, to me, it's clear that there was more internal hate probably for the Skookum, the white person. Now, there is, of course, the reading of the Skookum as just an evil spirit or uh, someone who is not a good person, right? And it has nothing to do with race. However, I do think that that is a much more limited reading and really only give us, gives us a vague fable about how you should not dam up rivers. I mean, yeah, you shouldn't, but it, that doesn't say as much as placing the skookum within their context of historical relevance to the Klamath. Like, wh what were the Klamath dealing with? That's why I say the skookum are almost certainly white people. Now that's about all I have to say about this myth. Sometimes myths are pretty small and only give us a, a momentary insight into uh, the ways in which a people functioned. Now there's lots of other myths by the Klamath. They were uh, pretty well documented, probably because of their willingness to trade with the Americans. So we will be returning to them eventually and looking at some of their longer myths, as well as their other myths about Coyote. You've been listening to Myth the first and last word with Echo Kane. Thank you so much for listening. You can support the show and my work by continuing to tune in, following the show wherever you get your podcasts, and sharing this podcast everywhere that you exist online. I also compose and record and produce my own music, which you can find on Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you stream music. If you are interested in my written or visual work, you can find my full artist profile on www.echocain.com. That's www.echocain.com. And really do go check out the, my uh, meta-analysis on the wetlands. Even if you're not a scientist, <clears throat> you can glean a lot of information from that document because I try to make it as accessible as possible. And if more people understand how important the areas right next to rivers and the actual maintenance of rivers' natural qualities is, then we might have a chance at changing the world a little bit. Of course, that is always a difficult process and one that quite clearly people are uninterested in doing right now because of the number of cattle farmers who have access to these lands. It's a big, complex issue, and I'm not going to get into it. Next episode, we'll be exploring the third chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, returning to the holy text again. 
Again, if you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions for the show, please compose one and only one email to theechocane at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and now, for the last word. Today's last word is... Opening.